The Gospels are full of the teachings of Jesus. He spoke to crowds about topics like the kingdom of heaven, generosity, and relationships. But some of his statements were hard to hear, and some appeared nearly impossible to apply. What do we do with these seemingly mic drop moments? Join us as we tackle these one-liner statements in our next series, Jesus Said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Grace Life. So good to be worshiping with you. Do me a favor. Help me welcome all of our first-time guests. So glad to have you guys with us, whether you're online or right here in the room. All right, hey, before we go any further, I wanna talk about something uh, about Grace Life and us being bigger than who we are. You know, sometimes we think that it's all about just coming into this room and, and you're just a part of this one thing. Well, we always say Grace Life itself is a family, meaning there's more to church than what we do here on Sundays. And it turns out there's more to this family than what takes place right here in Columbia. We're actually a part of a family of churches called Impact Churches. And I'm telling you that because there are two things coming up that some of you might want to be a part of. Uh, one of them is that we have our own uh, Bible college, Mana University and uh, Seminary as well. And they're actually in the lobby today for you to talk to them, get some questions answered. Uh, we want you to know that, that there's an opportunity for you to, to grow closer to God and to, to maybe get some more knowledge in specific ways without having to leave your current job or your current home. A lot of times people think that maybe taking one class in Bible college or something like that is only for pastors. But I bet many of you say, you know, I'd love to understand this a little bit more. And, and you, maybe you don't want a whole degree, you just want to do that. And then maybe there are some of you that do feel called by God to pursue an education, but you think the only way to go about it is to pack up your home and quit your job and to move away somewhere. But our college is built upon the, the idea, very important premise, that God's people can be trained for what he's called them to do right where you are. You don't have to quit what you're doing. You don't have to leave your church. You don't have to leave your job. So if you do have some ideas or some thoughts, you wanna figure out how maybe God could bring that into your life a little bit, stop by in the lobby today and talk to the folks at ManaU. And I wanna highlight, especially here, starting in a couple of weeks, we're gonna be doing one of their classes, uh, Theology One, right here in the building on Mondays. And so some of you may say, I'd really love how to understand the Bible and just some basic things about God a little bit better. Maybe that's for you, they can answer those questions. The second thing I want you to know about Impact, again, family of churches all over the country and honestly all over the world, some of them, and uh, we're gonna be hosting our mini conference, our annual conference right here at Grace Life in about three weeks. And so what that means is that you can come to it too. You know, sometimes you, you may think, well, that's what the church staff does, but uh, this is available for you. And I wanna tell you a little bit about what we're doing this time because I, I think some of you are gonna get excited about this. Uh, we have Stephen Mansfield, uh, New York Times bestselling author that will be our keynote speaker this year, uh, sharing from his book, Men on Fire. Uh, the statistics are incredible about when men serve God with their lives, how it changes the home, changes the community, and changes the culture. And uh, so look, we're gonna make that our theme this year. If you are a man who has a passion for seeing other men serve God and know God, if you have a passion for leading men's groups or any of that, I wanna encourage you to come out. We call it our mini conference because it's less than 24 hours. Starts on Tuesday afternoon, goes to Wednesday at lunch. Uh, and hopefully that'll work for your schedule. Uh, I do want you to know, ladies, there's gonna be as much for you uh, as well. So don't think that that topic means there's nothing for you. Um, it, it takes all of us to reach our world. And so hopefully you'll come out. If you want to be a part of that, simply go to our church website. There's a link for you to register there. Woo, that was a lot. 
You guys ready? We're in a series. Today is part three of a series we've been doing called Jesus Said. And if you've been on vacation because it is vacation season, or if you're new here for the first time and you've missed either of the first two parts, you can catch up. Both of those are online or on our website. Go and, and catch those. This has the most simple premise that I, I can remember doing for a series in a really long time. And, and that is Jesus said stuff what are we gonna do about it? There you go, that's the whole premise. Here's my point. We, we tend to read the Bible as spectators a lot of the time, and we see it as events that happened 2,000 or, or more years ago, and, and we read stories like, well, those people. Well, the reality is Jesus said some very challenging things, right? Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? And uh, the, the problem is we don't always put ourselves in the story and ask ourselves the question like, what should that mean to me? Like, what should change in my life because of what Jesus just said. But that's what we want to do with this series. We want to compress time. We want to bring you right into the story, bring Jesus right to where you're living right now. And when he says some of these challenging, life-altering phrases, we want to ask ourselves the question, what are we gonna do with that? And speaking of people responding to Jesus, we just, I, I wanna take a minute before we go any further and celebrate the response to Jesus that we had here at Grace Life over the last week. Over the last week, we had 22 people make Jesus their king and enter the kingdom of heaven. Come on, let's celebrate that, everybody. Yeah. Woo. Um, we're, we're, we're always excited to see people change eternal destinies. That's, that's just powerful. Well, uh, we were just singing a song, and I hope you were paying attention. When we do worship songs here, we're very intentional about what they say. We're always intentional about what we choose, and uh, we were just singing a song, there was a line in it, it says, you've never failed me yet. Were y'all paying attention? Did y'all catch that? And, and I think that this song is one of the most perfect reminders that we need when we're going through a challenging time. God's never failed us. Why would we think he's gonna do it now? But the reality is we all know that here, and we don't always know it here. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. So do this for me. Raise your hand if when you go through a tough time, you absolutely never worry. You never have any fear. You never have any concern. You know it will always turn out exactly the way that it needs to and that God is right there and sees everything. Okay, you may go to lunch. And if you're not honest about that, God's gonna strike you in the lobby. I'm just gonna leave that. But I noticed I didn't see many other hands because the reality is, we do know what the Bible says about our God. We do know the words we sing about him, but then when we enter into a tough time, a tough season, a storm, well, it's a little bit different to actually live it out. And uh, the story we're looking at today, the disciples were in one of those situations where, I mean, they'd, they'd been around Jesus. They, they should have known. And yet when something difficult came up, they, they kind of freaked out. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're gonna be in Mark chapter four, starting in verse 35. If not, don't worry, it's all gonna be on the screen right here beside you. And I'll go ahead and tell you as you're turning that this is a very common story. Uh, if you grew up going to Sunday school or grew up in church, you've probably already heard the story. I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to give you anything new you haven't heard. What I am trying to do is to get us to respond differently. Is that okay, everybody, with me on that one? And so here we go. On that day when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. So let me set, give you the setting for the story here. They're on the Sea of Galilee. And what that phrase means, as he was, Jesus was already in the boat. Because what had happened earlier that day, the crowd had gotten so big and had started pressing 
forward because that's what humans do in crowds. They kind of panic a little bit. That Jesus had to get into a boat and kind of push off from the shore to make sure that there was a safe distance from him and the mob, so to speak. And it's kind of like what we have here. We have a big aisle down front, and then we have a stage, and we have safety team positioned to make sure no one crosses that barrier. And if you want to try that, you go ahead, and they'll, they'll get a little bit physical with you, but that'll be fun for the rest of us to watch. And so that's what Jesus did. He created this space like, man, they're going to push me into the water if I don't just go ahead and get in a boat. And so he had spent the whole day teaching there in the sun, and uh, now he says, let's go. And as they're going across the Sea of Galilee, it says, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling now, if you have never been to Israel and seen the Sea of Galilee, if you've never looked at pictures of this, then you probably love this story. You probably imagine that this is a little bit like the Atlantic Ocean or a tsunami in the Pacific Ocean or anybody see George Clooney in the perfect storm, right? That tells how old you are, by the way. And so you imagine this, this, this story kind of playing out like that. And it's exciting to read that and realize that's what these guys are, are going through until you go to Israel, and you see the Sea of Galilee. And I'm going to tell you, the first time I went to Israel and I saw the Sea of Galilee, I had a problem reading this story from then on. Because the Sea of Galilee is, we say it that way, instead of just calling it like the little pond that they have over in Israel. I'm telling you, I was, I was expecting something big. And you, you woke up to it and you're like, I can see the other side. I can see people on the other side. Like, what's this little lake thing over here? Why do they call it a sea? It's, I don't know. I guess they just, some vague term to make us think it's fancier than it really is. And so the truth is, I, I had a problem for several years reading this story. It shows up in the Gospels and read the Bible all the time. And so I'm thinking, how are they really freaking out? How are they really afraid? I mean, it, it's probably like ankle deep. I mean, it's not that big a deal, which is not true, by the way. And, and so then there was another time I was in Israel. And it also changed how I read the story because I was on the Sea of Galilee in a boat when a big storm came up. And, and it was a, a sudden storm out of nowhere. And now I read the story very differently. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you read it that way as well. You see, what happens that we don't understand, it's not about the size of this big sea. It's not about it having you know tsunamis and currents like a, an ocean would have. The Sea of Galilee is special. It's 700 feet below sea level and surrounded by mountains. And, and I'm not a weatherman or whatever you call those people, meteorologist. And I'm also not a scientist, so I'm not gonna bore you with how this works because I don't know how it works. Here's what I do know happens, is that there are these violent downdrafts of wind that come over these hills and drop down into this 700-foot valley below the sea level. And so it's not just about it being a, sun, a sudden storm. I mean, we've all been in sudden storms. If you live here in Columbia in the summer, there are those thunderstorms. You went into the store, it was great. Now you come outside and you just took a shower on your way to the car. Sudden is not the issue. Violent is the issue. These downdrafts are unpredictable and they're a serious problem. And so as I was on this tour boat, I mean, my boat was a big boat. Now, not like Navy big, not like that but like big enough that we had rows of deck chairs and it had a roof and a steering wheel and a crew and it had a sound system so that we could play worship music while we're on the Sea of Galilee pretending to be in the story, that whole sort of, thing. it's a tourist thing, you'll just have to try it someday. But anyway, I'm in this, this pretty big boat compared to what they're in because in order to get on my boat, I had to walk through the museum that has one of their boats. You see, one of their boats had been sunk. 
And it was from the first century, about the time of this story. And it was buried in mud, so it was protected. And it's a little boat, y'all. I mean, it's only like 20-something feet long and only four feet high, top to bottom. It only fits 15 people if you're New York subway style. And so these guys were out in the storm in one of these, fully loaded, and suddenly one of these violent windstorms comes up, and these guys are kind of freaking out. You've got to realize they grew up here. Most of these guys were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus had called to be his disciples. Here's what that meant. They knew about the violence of these storms and the wind that would come up. They probably knew people that were fishing one day that they never saw again. Matter of fact, the boat that's in the museum, for all we know, belonged to one of their cousins. They understood that this was a big deal. Some of them may have had to swim back to shore before. Here's my point, the reason I tell you all of that, is because they had every legitimate reason in the natural to truly be freaking out. This was a big deal. I'm on a big boat with a roof, keeping the rain out with like life vest, and I'm, I'm making an exit plan. I'm just gonna be honest with you in that storm. I was sitting here thinking, is it better if I swim to that side? Or do I swim to this side? And at least my kids are at home and I don't have to worry about them. Just my wife, she's a good swimmer, so we're good to go. You know, I mean, I was seriously making that kind of a plan and I'm in a big boat. They're in a little one. They had every reason to freak out, except Jesus didn't think so. What was he doing? It says, but Jesus was in the stern. That's the back of the boat, everybody. He was asleep on the cushion. And so in these boats, they would simply have a little platform that was even with the top where they could lay stuff like the gear or whatever they're using. If you were in the boat, you were literally like down in the bottom of the boat like a canoe. And so then there's just this little platform at the back. It's not built up, it's not any higher. And so Jesus was laying down on this platform and he was asleep. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Are you really asleep in a storm? Like a real storm. I mean, like rain is coming down. I don't know about y'all, I wake up when I'm wet. That just, that, that just happens. And, and just for the record, I don't wake up wet. Just, we're just gonna just, <laughs> that was gonna come out wrong. But if I were in a hammock on a beautiful day and suddenly ended up soaking wet, I think that would wake me up, right? And Jesus is asleep. There, there's water coming from heavens. There's water coming from the sea into the boat and he's asleep and they freak out. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of people that debate they, they take like deep meaning and there are books written on how Jesus could sleep during this. And so let me try to give us a little bit of insight because this is actually very important for us. Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man. And that's one of our very important theological beliefs as Christians because if he were only God, then he would have lived a perfect life, but he couldn't have died for your sins because only man can die for man's sins. If he were fully man, then he could have died for your sins, but he wouldn't have been perfect, so he would have been busy dying for his own. And so I know this might be a strange theology thought for you, and I'm not gonna go any further today, so everybody relax right there, but here's the deal. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and the Bible tells us that he chose, even though he was fully God, not to operate out of his divinity. What that means is that he chose to set aside the power of being God in order to operate as a man filled with the Spirit of God. And the reason that's so important is because we go around and ask the question, what would Jesus do? Well, it doesn't matter Jesus, if Jesus did it as God because you're not God. Good luck with that. You've got no chance to do this thing well if, if Jesus is only God and doing everything that he does as God. 
But what he was modeling for us is the life that we could live, a life where we can be a human and be filled with the Spirit of God. Matter of fact, Jesus told us that we will do greater things than he did. You know what that means? That means when Jesus said no to sin, we can say no to sin. Amen, somebody, right? What that means is when Jesus healed somebody, we can pray and see somebody healed. Jesus raised people from the dead. I don't know about y'all, I'm waiting on the day I get to do that too. You know, that's, that's the point. That's what we get to do. And he was modeling that for us. So Jesus is fully man and fully God. And here is the day where fully man is revealing itself in the sense that he's exhausted. The Bible tells us he was thirsty at times. He was hungry at times. And if you go back and you read all of the chapter, what you realize is Jesus has been teaching in this boat all day. He got in the boat earlier. It's, it's in the sun, in the Middle East, heat. And, and, you know, I mean, I only do this for like 30 minutes, and I get to run backstage. They got a bottle of water waiting for me. Jesus did this all day long, and they didn't give him any Dr. Pepper breaks. Like, he was tired. There was no Gatorade. Nobody was running over there, you know, splashing him with little spritzes of water or something like that. He was just truly tired. Not to mention, this actually takes energy, and he was teaching the, the heart of God, the humanity. I can just imagine the exhaustion that came with that. And so he gets into this boat, and he goes to sleep. The other side of that debate is, oh, well, you know, I think it was more about his inner peace. And the truth is, I believe he had absolute inner peace. Because not only was he exhausted as fully man, but what he also was was a man who had complete peace in who his father was. He knew the nature of his father. He knew the character of his father. He knew the sovereign will of his father. And he had no reason to be freaking out because his body was tired and his daddy was good. Come on, somebody, y'all know what I'm saying. And that's where Jesus was. That's not where the disciples were. That's not where we usually are when we're in a problem. What, what was happening is the disciples started shouting, wait a minute, don't you care? And the reality is that is exactly what we think. If you have grown up going to church, if you go to church often, if, if you believe in the God of the Bible, then you already know up here, he sees everything. He knows everything, and he can do anything. We know that here, right? So when we're going through something really tough and we're kind of panicking and having one of those freak-out moments, what we're really saying is, don't you care? I know you see. I mean, you're God. I know you could wave a magic wand. You don't even need a magic wand. And you could still get me out of this, but do you care? I mean, I realize you're dealing with a refugee crisis over there on the other side of the earth. There's a couple of wars or something going on. A couple billion people not going to heaven. That's probably pretty important to you right now. Maybe I'm just not that important. Do you care? That's really what our heart is saying when we're panicking. And it's what his disciples are doing. This week, I was reminded of something by one of my mentors I'd like to share with you. When we're in that place and we're kind of having that moment, what we're looking for is answers. But what we need is not answers. We need assurance. So here's the difference. Answers are about knowing how things will turn out. Assurance is about knowing God cares because you will never have all the answers. Some of you have been through storms, storms that were five years ago, and you still don't have all the answers. It's not about having the answers, and I can promise you this today. If you try to base your faith upon having all the answers, you will never have peace in a storm. But if you base your faith on the assurance that God cares, and he wants good for you, and he knows what is good, then you can have assurance in a storm. And so, 
he awoke. And he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I think that's the funniest part of the whole story. I mean, like, these guys are freaking out. They think they're gonna die in a tiny little boat, right? And, and, and so they wake Jesus up to do something about the wind, and when he does something about the wind, they're surprised he could do something about the wind, and on top of that, they're now more scared of him than they were of the wind in the first place. Like, oh my gosh, tiny boat, we can't get away from him. Can we have the wind back? And somebody tells us he's got to go back to sleep. I mean, who knows what else he's going to do? You know, it's, I just think that's absolutely hilarious. Why'd you wake the dude up if you didn't think he was actually going to do something? Crazy. But kind of brings us to our question of the day. Like, what are you going to do? Think about what you're going through and just imagine Jesus looking you in the eyes and saying, why are you so afraid? Still? Still no faith? And, and I have to tell you, I don't think that this was one of the times that Jesus spoke softly. You know, there are those times where you read the Bible and you, 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 you mouth it as though Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, you do that kind of thing, right? I don't think this was one of those times. I don't think he was kind of smiling and going, oh, boys, why y'all so afraid? I mean, first of all, the man was asleep like seven seconds ago. And I don't know about you, but if you wake me up and make me solve your problem within seven seconds of when I was in deep sleep, I'm going to have to apologize for my tone of voice later. It's going to be like repentance. We're going to have to have a conversation. I mean, the man was fully, fully man, fully God, but I think some fully man part kind of showed up right here to go, why are you afraid? You still have no faith? I mean, seriously, guys, what's wrong with you? It's all in the word. Still? Still? Where were you when I prayed for the man with the withered hand? You were right there. You watched his hand stretch out and grow. Peter, you you were right there beside me, man. You were almost drooling on his hand. How can you forget that? How about the time when I was casting out demons with such incredible power? People were getting set free so powerfully that all of the religious rulers said, man, he's got to be Satan because only the chief of demons could boss demons around like that. Did y'all forget that? And you remember the the people with leprosy? I mean, that's an incurable disease. You get leprosy, you just got to go live outside the village till you die. Nobody can do anything for you, but I can make it go away with a word. Did you forget that still? The paralytic who had never walked until he met me, still, still, come on, guys, why are you so afraid? Still. Still, after all that. As I was getting ready to walk on stage Thursday evening to preach, the Holy Spirit reminded me of something that I, I didn't really put in my notes. I want to share it because I, I think it's a really important thought here as well. They were in the boat with Jesus. You see, I don't know about you, but most of the time in my life when I'm freaking out, (laughs) oh my gosh, God, what are you going to do? Where are we going to go? How's this going to turn out? I always feel like I'm having to ask God to come and help me. Come on, God. God, I'm over here. God, come be with me. God, come be with me. They were with God. They were in the boat with God. Here's the deal. God's boat doesn't sink. Like if we could just be with God doing what God is telling us to do, 
we would have a whole lot less fear because God ain't going down with the ship because the ship ain't going down. Come on, somebody. We need to be with God instead of hoping that God sees us far away and comes and rescues us. Back to his question. Why aren't you so afraid? I mean, still? Look, you may be rationalizing what you're going through and trying to answer Jesus' question. Well, I'll tell you why I'm afraid, Jesus. The disciples were doing the same thing. They would have done that. Uh, why? Well, let's see. Why? I mean, could you help us bail the water out of the boat? The boat's already half full. We're packed in here, like really crowded, tiny boat. There's like 15 of us. You know, Jesus plus his 12 disciples. They didn't own the boat, so probably a father and son crew rowing this thing. So they're packed in like a subway car, and that's when it's level water. And, and there are waves and violent winds. And like, Jesus, I can tell you why I'm kind of afraid. And I can just imagine Jesus going, Seriously? Still? For you and me, I think God would ask us, still? And I want you to know, I, I, I'm just like you. I didn't raise my hand earlier and said I don't have my own bad days and fears and worries. There are things I still don't have answers to that I intend to say, hey, God, can we take a walk down that street of gold over there and find us a cafe, sit down? I got to talk to you about some things that happened on earth I never understood. I got, I've got questions. I've got things in my life that have worked out in a way that I'm still trying to figure out what God was doing sometimes or what God will do. So I, I just get to be just like you, somebody following Jesus with questions that, that, that talks a little bit more. So I understand some of you are saying, well, it's not that easy, Jimmy. I know it's not that easy. I want to share with you a situation in our lives where I feel like we had a good answer to why are you still afraid? For us, it was when we were having children, when we were going to the hospital in the car, I was driving my wife to the hospital to give birth to our last child. She turned to me and she said, do you realize, like we've, we're not supposed to be afraid this time. I don't know how to feel. Like we've never gone to the hospital thinking, this will work out well. Here's our story. Our firstborn, when we were going to the hospital with him, well, first of all, can I just say firstborn child parents, anybody in the room, you know, you're like 20-something, you're a child yourself for the most part, and you're like, I don't know, are they going to come out with like a tail and horns? And I don't even, I mean, you're just kind of scared because you're a first-time parent. But we had a serious reason to be afraid. For whatever reason, in just three generations of my family, immediate family, grandparents, parents, and siblings, we had already seen the death of four firstborn sons, either in birth or shortly thereafter. And we're pregnant with our firstborn son. So we've got a little bit of a concern, and that's a sermon on curses for another day, but we were genuinely concerned. When we went to the hospital to give birth to our second child, well, the doctors had already told us five or six months earlier because of what they saw in an ultrasound that we had no reason to expect this child to leave the hospital with us. They said this child has a fatal birth defect. And, and so we spent those months praying and asking God to do a miracle. Turns out the doctors were correct. So when we go to the hospital to have our third child, well, they had actually told us again 
this child also has a birth defect and you should not expect. But we believe in a good God and we still loved our God regardless of the decisions that he had made earlier in our other child. But I'll be honest, I didn't have the strongest faith at that point in my life. And we both went to the hospital that day assuming we'd get the same outcome that we got the time before. So when we go to the hospital to have our next child, it had been my wife's worst pregnancy physically. She had gestational diabetes. There was concerns over preeclampsia and, and the, the doctors had been really concerned over the baby. They were afraid that it would be either my wife or the baby or both. They had all kinds of numbers on what he weighed and heartbeat and all that kind of stuff. They just said, we got to get him out now. Come to the hospital now. So when we went to the hospital with our last child, the doctors hadn't told us to expect anybody to die. The, the doctors hadn't told us that we were going to have to choose between my wife and our, our little girl. That no, We were like, is this what people feel like? Actually, I bet people are excited. We're just numb. And I think if we could look at that story from what Jesus would be saying, if Jesus were in the car right then, because I'm not sure my answer was any better to my wife, like, yeah, this is weird, isn't it? I think what Jesus would have done, I mean, have one of those moments where he just pops his head up from the back seat. Hey, can I talk to y'all for a second? That would have been fun. I think his version of the story would have been, come on, y'all. Seriously? Still? Hey, you remember your firstborn child? You thought a curse was going to win? I won. Hey, you remember your second child? Look, I, I know you don't understand why God did what he did, but have you ever thought about the fact that she is with me and my father in heaven right now, and she got there without any of the misery on earth, so she might actually be the most blessed of all your kids, and you'll see her again. And when it comes to your third child, I mean, have you seen what I did in him? Which, by the way, he's running around here somewhere today serving on like every team that he can because he loves what we do here 14 years later after he wasn't supposed to be alive. And as for the next child, when he came out, all of the doctor's numbers were wrong. He'd apparently gone on a diet in the last day in the womb and lost like four pounds and his blood pressure dropped down to a healthy level. I mean, he came out nothing like what they were afraid of and my wife did not have preeclampsia and everything. She's fine, he's fine. Everybody's, he's like, did you not notice I showed up? Oh, and by the way, Jimmy, you need to remember what I did in that room that you didn't even know was a problem. Like, I, I took care of something before you even knew to pray for it. I'll tell you that story real quickly. We uh, went in to, to give birth again because everybody's kind of panicking, and, and then some stuff was happening. The hospital was understaffed, and the doctors were needed in another emergency. And so as our son starts to, to enter the world, they kind of said, well, this is all you got. And it was uh, two nurses and uh, a, a resident. And I'm thinking, well, a resident is like just a young doctor and giving birth is one of the more simple things. It's supposed to kind of take care of itself, to be honest. I mean, it shouldn't take a whole lot. So, uh, and she's a female, we're good. She's, you know, babysat, been around babies like that. This, this should be easy. I was not too worried at the moment until our son does start to enter the world. And, and she's like, I'm like, girl was not a babysitter. And I'm thinking, if you're going to let my son fall on the floor, you just need to back up because I'm going to catch him. I mean, this ain't going to happen. And so after a couple of pushes and 
She decides she's going to help the process by grabbing his head and pulling. And here's the thing. I don't even know there's a problem. My wife does not even know there's a problem, but God did. And before I even knew that I had a problem that I needed to pray about, before I could even pray about it, suddenly the doctor that could not come walks in the door and from the other side of the room says, stop! Because he could already see that my son had his umbilical cord wrapped around his neck twice and around his arm once. And if she had pulled for just a few more seconds, he would have either been paralyzed or killed. I didn't even know I needed God to show up, and he did. And I think Jesus would be looking at us in the car on the way to have our last baby going, <laughs> still, after those stories, still. And that's where the problem comes in. We don't remember the goodness of God. We don't recount all that he's done and all that has happened in our lives. That's, that's where we miss it. I want to share with you a thought as I close on how we can build our faith. Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Two thoughts. I was really what I've been sharing the whole day. The first one is simply God's word. You see, God created us, put us on earth, and then we had no idea who he was or anything about him until he chose to reveal himself. God says this is his revelation of himself as well as his interactions with mankind. You see, it is in here that we have the promises of God that says, look, I've got plans for you, plans for welfare, plans for good, plans not to harm you. It's the promise of God that you want to stand on in those moments. It's only found in here. And then it's the stories of God's goodness in people's lives. Like, you know what? I know God's got me in this because he had David. God's got me. He had Daniel. God's got me. He had Abraham, Moses, Esther. The stories go on and on. But the problem is, there's an attack against this as the revelation of God himself. Some people are afraid God couldn't have revealed himself because men held the pen. Some people believe this couldn't be true because, well, they think science said such and such. And if you don't have the promises of God, the nature of God, the character of God, when you go through a hard time, then what do you have? And I don't think it's a coincidence that as we see more and more attack against the word of God as being trustworthy and true, that we also see more and more fear in the midst of a storm. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do this I mean, Jesus said so many things. I, I told you last week, I've got like seven pages of Jesus one-liners that we could do this series off of. I think we'll be doing a Jesus said series once a year for like the rest of my career. But the reason I wanted to do this one right now is because of the world that you and I live in. I've personally been blown away by the number of Jesus followers that have been gripped with fear and anxiety and worry over the last year year and a half now, I guess. You see, look, as I'm preaching this today and you're thinking through your storm, some of you, the storm that you're facing is, is a medical thing that doctors don't have an answer for. Maybe it's a relational thing. Your spouse has said there's no way to fix this, but maybe, but you, you, you can't do it. Maybe it's financial. I don't know what it is. And some of you have been saying, well, you know, Jimmy, I'm really not facing a storm right now. Look, here's the reality. Every one of us is facing a storm right now. We live in a worldwide pandemic that none of us wanted, that we all hoped had gone away, and apparently we're about to see round two. We've lived in the middle of political turmoil that's almost divided every one of us against somebody. 
We've lived in the midst of social unrest. Our world is still not at peace. We live in a huge storm. And so many of us have been so afraid of how this is gonna go and how it's gonna turn out and what we're supposed to, because we're looking for answers instead of assurance. Instead of looking for God in the midst of everything we've been facing. The last thing that builds our faith is to look back and say, God, you've never failed me yet. Malachi 3.16, I'll leave you with this. It says that then those who feared the Lord, they talked with each other and the Lord heard, he was listening and a scroll of remembrance was written. So here's what you and I need. We need a scroll of remembrance of what God has done in our lives. We need to be able to look back and recount the goodness. You know, the Bible actually tells us don't keep a record of wrongs. You know why the Bible has to tell us do not keep a record of wrongs? Because it comes naturally. We're really good at, I can't believe you said that to me. How dare you? But we'll never forget it. But we're not real good at keeping a record of rights. But that's what they did. They got together that day and they wrote down. You and I, that word for us is journal. And before all the men in the room freak out, I did not say diary. Not a diary. But you do need to keep track of your conversation with God. You do need to keep track of the goodness of God in your life. So when you, when you know you're about to take your wife to the hospital for the fifth child, you can go back and look at birth dates and see the goodness of God over the last 15 years of your life and go, I think God's got this. But we don't naturally keep a record of all of the goodness. Matter of fact, what I think happens is the devil loves so much to keep our eyes on our problems that we can't remember our past victories. And I don't know about you, but my memory's just not that good. I think we might need to start writing some stuff down. So what I want us to do today as we close is I've asked the worship team to lead us back into that song that we were doing earlier. And before anybody moves, this is not the closing song where you go to the bathroom and get your kids. This is part of the message. This is us simply responding to God for a minute. I'm not even gonna leave the stage, I'm gonna come back. We're not done, so nobody go anywhere. But what I want you to do, if you can, if you wanna just stand here and declare this truth over your lives, God, you have never failed me. You've never failed me yet. You've got no reason to think you ever will. I know you won't. For some of you, maybe instead of singing, you just say, God, remind me. Just let God start reminding you of all of the things that he's done, how he's never failed you, all of the victories, things that maybe had left the forefront of your thinking. Would you stand to your feet with me? And let's declare and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us that he's never failed us yet.
is our confidence, God. You've never failed us. You've never failed us yet. God, we just take a moment and confess to you there are times we may even say, yes, you did. But the reality is you didn't fail us. You just may not have done exactly what we wanted. So God, we surrender those thoughts to you because the devil loves those thoughts. We surrender those to you and say, I I may not have answers. I may not understand. But today, I choose to trust you and declare, you've never failed me yet. You've never failed me yet. And so this is my confidence to say, I know you never will. I know you never will. I thank you, God, for your goodness to me. If you just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. As we said, he was fully God, fully man. What that means is he was able to come and live a perfect life without sin and also to pay for our sins. And that's exactly what he did. He willingly chose to die on the cross so that you could be made right with God something we call salvation. It's the forgiveness of our sins, being made right with the Father and eternal life with Him. But it is a free gift we have to make an exchange. At some point in history, and if that's today for you, then we have to look at Jesus hanging on the cross and say, thank you. Thank you that you died for me. If you have never made that exchange, if you are not confident that you have eternal life in heaven, then just say something like this to yourself and to God. I'm gonna help you with that. Say, dear Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. And my simple prayer here today is that you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Everybody help me celebrate with those people. Amen.